This is a Music Therapy Chronicles podcast episode with Jennifer Jones. That and you, that's a value, right? That's a that's a clinical judgment. That's more intuition, which is why I say there's really no fine line between quantitative and qualitative. We're all looking at it as a story. One just has a little more math in it, one has a little less. But there's no way to take out valuing and giving numbers context. You're listening to the Music Therapy Chronicles, a podcast about music therapy from a variety of perspectives. Our ambition is to inspire and connect listeners through meaningful conversations, just like a music therapy conference you can listen to anywhere. My name is Trisha Coyote. I'm your weekly host and a board-certified music therapist from the New England region. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe so you never miss an episode and consider leaving us a rating and review. We really appreciate them. You can find more podcast episodes, links to our pod courses, the self-care community, links to all of our social media, and get on our monthly newsletter all at musictherapychronicles.com. Thank you so much for choosing to listen to this show today. And you can always reach me by sending an email to hello at musictherapychronicles.com. Welcome back to the Music Therapy Chronicles. Thank you so much for being here today for my episode with Jennifer. This was a really thought-provoking episode. Um, It started, this whole conversation started because Jennifer reached out to me about a different episode of the podcast. So she is a listener of the podcast, reached out to me to share her thoughts, which I so appreciate. And I said, this is awesome very thought-provoking, very informative, like I would love to have this conversation Um, and will you come on the show so that everyone can be part of it. So really appreciative to her for coming on. Um, If you ever just want to reach out and tell me your thoughts and you don't want to come on the show, that's okay. I will say that. I do want to hear what you have to say, but it is really cool to be able to open up the conversation and see how these episodes um, inform each other, lead into each other, start more deeper conversations like I love that about this podcast and the community that um that we're, we have created and that we have so thank you for being here for listening to the episodes for sharing your thoughts or sharing this episode with another person that's how this podcast has grown um just word of mouth people saying like hey I listened to this you might like it whether it is uh, a friend a colleague a music therapist a related professional an intern a student a teacher you know whatever it is word of mouth is how people have found this show so thank you so much for supporting the music therapy chronicles I've been at this for um three and a half years going on four years so it's great to have built 
such a community over time. Um, I'll get off my soapbox now, but I am really appreciative. So today with Jennifer, we're talking about polarity and music therapy. And we look at, um, I'm, don't let this word scare you. We look at research. We're talking about research and the polarity and research uh, mostly. So qualitative versus quantitative versus mixed method and all this kind of stuff. And we touch on some other polarity in, um, in music therapy. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just let you listen to the episode and share my, my other thought at the end of this episode. So for now, let's get into my conversation with Jennifer. Jennifer, welcome to the Music Therapy Chronicles. Thank you. How are you today? I'm doing well. Good. Good. So to start us off, can you tell the listeners about yourself and it can be related to music therapy or not? Sure. I am closing in on my 30th year as an MTBC. So this is a long story, I guess, of how did I get here? I was a very diehard band kid, flute player, um, Mm -hmm. started in the sixth grade, really had no early exposure to music, a very unmusical family, but I really wanted to be in the band. And unfortunately, I had signed up for clarinet, but got braces over the summer and had to switch. So I didn't get my instrument for three weeks. So I made a paper flute and I would practice my paper flute waiting on my instrument to get there. And I was in love within a week of music in sixth grade. So all the way through high school, did all the things with music, started looking at a career and I wanted psychology. In fact, I wanted to be a psych tester. I wanted to be the person who gives psychological examinations to people. So very Mm. much that mind thinking, quantification elements to my brain. And I wanted scholarship money in music. Yeah. Because you got to pay for school. So I went over, did my flute audition, and they said, well, guess what? We don't give scholarships unless you're a music major. But we see music and psychology. This was 1988. Do you know what music therapy is? And I was like, no. And they said, well, why don't you go upstairs and talk to the music therapy faculty and see if that's something that interests you? Well, 30 minutes later, I came down, pronounced myself a music therapy major, got my scholarship and went forward from there. I remember my um, electrical engineering dad saying, what what are you studying? And I said, I have (laughs) no idea. But in four years, I'm sure I will know. And so very much just taking it on faith that music, staying in music felt good and felt important and leaving it behind felt impossible. So Mm. we married music and therapy together and um, did, I think at that point, my training was very person-centered and kind of mental health heavy. So that's how I saw myself, did an internship in central Pennsylvania at an inpatient children through adolescent, through adult psychiatric hospital, finished my internship. And I was in that cycle of people that could only take the exam once a year. Oh, that I'm, I'm that person. So I took the exam a month before my wedding and got my results on my wedding day. 
at which point I said, I don't care what's in that envelope. Like this is not the focus today. My mom opened my, my certification exam for me. She said, you passed. And I was like, great. I need to get my nails dried. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Didn't even hit me until about two days later. I was like, oh, I'm an MTBC. That's kind of cool. And a wife. <laughs> and now I'm a wife. And I changed my last yeah. name from Smith to Jones which is why I didn't hyphenate and why I didn't keep my parents' name because Smith Jones in the same household is just a little comedic. So kept Jones all the way through. So internship, went into clinical practice. I saw mental health as my, my niche. That's where I wanted to be. Got a job, several jobs, three years working in inpatient mental health. And I chose to go back to school for my master's degree in music therapy. So I went to Florida State at that point, switched more to a behavioral lens. So I came from person-centered humanistic, switched more towards um, behavioral. And I, when I went in, I said, the thing you have to let me not do is go back into mental health. I need to learn about mm -hmm. other types of work and other ways of thinking about this. Now I worked during school as a mental health music therapist because you gotta pay for school. But I really got to see early childhood, got to see developmental disability, got to see medical practice a little. And I was like, okay, so this is broadening, which is why I went to grad school, broadened my focus. So when I returned to full-time clinical practice after school, I went into developmental disability. So I worked in mm -hmm. early childhood, zero to three um, for a while. And then I worked at then an institution, uh, in, ICFMR is what they called it, which we've stopped calling it that, Intermediate Care Facility for Individuals with Developmental Disabilities, um, and mostly adults. We had a handful of people under 20, but most of the people were adults, and they had lived the majority of their lives there. So that was coming up into the 2000s. Thankfully, that place is closed, and all of those folks now live in a community, in a home, mm. and have services come to them. So I've seen that shift in the in my career yeah. lifetime um so i did that for several years and then a job came up in college teaching at my alma mater which was tennessee tech and i was like you know let's just see if this is something i want to do and it was and again like the experience with one week after having my flute in my hands after a week of teaching i'm like this this is the thing this is the thing that matches all of the skills that I've been growing. So I started college teaching yeah. at that point and have never looked back, I guess. So I've been in higher ed teaching or my PhD for gosh, coming on 20 years now. Wow. Good for you. Yeah. A lifer. Yeah. I'm a lifer for music therapy. Yeah. <laughs> I have, I have kind of a very finite question. Where did you do your internship? I, like what yes. was location? It was Center Hall, Pennsylvania, outside of State College at a psychiatric facility called The Meadows. Oh, yeah. Okay. I know The Meadows. I did my internship at the Danville State Hospital, so I didn't know if maybe we had been at the same place, but I am familiar with them. Yeah. The Meadows. I actually had a friend who worked there for a while. Yeah. 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 Okay, cool. I was just curious. I was like, how, what's, what are the odds that we were in the same place? It was my <laughs> one, street. yeah, it was one, my one time living in um, the mid-Atlantic region. So I've lived in the Southeast mm -hmm. region, the mid-Atlantic region, and now the Great Lakes region. So I'm doing my tour, I guess, of parts of the country across my yeah. career. Yeah. 
but also like you said you you've been in this long enough to have seen like a huge trajectory and lots of changes and all that kind of stuff um yeah which is really cool to hear about yeah length of stay like just length of stay in my mental health phase which was about about eight years from internship through that switch into developmental disability my internship I mean people stayed more than a week inpatient Mm -hmm. And when I first started in clinical practice in Nashville, we only wrote um, progress notes once a week because patients stayed long enough that about a week was a nice summary. Mm -hmm. By the time I moved to Florida to do my graduate work, it was a daily note because the length Mm -hmm. of stay was getting shorter and shorter and patients were being discharged without any record of services. And so I was like, well, that's that's not good because I have information that's important for the medical team to see and to benefit from. And my, I think one of the most compliments I ever got was the psychiatrist we worked with. She said, I read your note first. When I get to the unit, I read what they did in music therapy first, because then I kind of know how my patient is actually doing before I even go see them. And I was like, wow, that's, great like i will i will be very astute and give you good quality notes because i appreciate that you're considering how they're expressing themselves and how they're engaging in ways other than just a quick report of their symptoms to you because that Mm -hmm. that's not a real good picture of of their recovery so i was delighted that somebody actually read my progress notes yeah. Well, also just to know that you have that support network because, yeah. you know, so many of us, I'm sure, you know, are doing notes and like, no one's going to read this and blah, blah, blah. But like, hey, there could be that one person who really prioritizes what you have to say. Yeah. 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 For sure. So the the meat of our conversation today was a little bit of a hard shift. Um, you want to talk about research. And I love when you reached out to me and you were like, hey, I have these thoughts about something you said on your show, because I love when when someone's like, you said this thing or you talked about this thing and like, here's a different perspective on it. So I'm just going to let you take it wherever you're ready to take it, whatever's on top of mind. Sure. So um, I am a fangirl. I listen to your podcast quite frequently. Thank you. Yeah. And so I listen to, I appreciate the breadth of the guests and especially as somebody who's been in college teaching as long as I have, I love to hear from clinicians talking about Mm -hmm. the work because that keeps me grounded in what I'm teaching to students as they move into the profession as it is now, not the profession it was 10 years or 20 years ago when I was still an active clinician. And and the podcaster was talking about um, quantitative and qualitative inquiry and kind of the idea of numbers and measures and used, associated it really as a poll, right? Numbers are on one side, qualitative descriptors are on another side and that they are, in my mind, I was like polls. I, I, di- I just don't like the idea of polls anymore, almost in anything in my life. There's, it's just too muddy in real life and it's too intersecting to separate it as a poll. The other thing mm-hmm. the podcaster mentioned was that quantities were more masculine and that qualities were more feminine. And like little flashing lights went off on my head. I'm like, ooh, ooh, I really don't like that. I, yeah. I really don't like that. And what I didn't, I didn't like probably has to do with my background as a student in high school. 
I was the only female on the math team for four straight years. And in fact, when you put the whole seat, like freshmen through senior teams together, I think there were only two women and all the rest of the teams were guys. And it was really seen as not female to be good at math. In fact, Yeah. verbatim, my math teacher said, if not once a day, once a week, everybody knows boys are smarter than girls. Ah, oh, snickerdoodles. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I will just take that as fuel to prove yeah. you wrong that Yeah. I am in fact as math smart as these guys surrounding me. And hopefully long-term we can make one another smarter at this. So I, I really pulled back as a female in a profession dominated by females who are often trying to, I use the word prove, <laughs> prove ourselves in a scientific world like medicine. And that we have, we gravitate towards numerical data, towards quantity, because that is a language of science. And I, I don't want it to be associated as female or male, because there's such a pulling with that. And likewise, Yeah. I don't want non-females to feel like quality or story is somehow unmasculine. Like, I'd just like to take the gender thing out entirely. Let's just have information. Some information is quantity. Some information is quality and story. And they're just, they inform in a different way. And Yeah. that is what I really, I think we're getting there with mixed methods. Yeah, And yeah. we're getting there. But it's, if you are a math brain or you're a story brain, it's still hard to embrace the other side of that and see it from their perspective. I call it throwing sand. Like we have the quantitative sandbox and the qualitative sandbox. And if you're playing in your own sandbox, everybody is happy. But at some point somebody throws sand at you <laughs> and challenges Yeah. your way of thinking. And instead of saying, hey, I enjoyed getting sand in my face, we just throw sand back. <laughs> and it's like, no, there's, there's value. in both, even the term values loaded, like value can mean a number, but it can also mean really a heartfelt belief at the same time. So as I was making notes to myself, I just kept looking at this idea of poles and quantity and really how do we document in music therapy, whether it's clinical practice or in research, how are we valuing different things? And whether that's new and when it's numbers and then when it's not. Yeah, totally. And, and we kind of briefly touched on, there's a ton of polarity in our profession. And that's, that's one of the things I love about the podcast again, because I get to talk with people and they get to tell me like, this is where I stand, or this is, you know, I'm in the middle or whatever. Uh, it's nice to hear the different perspectives. And so oftentimes if I like had a nickel for every time on the show, I'd said the word polarity, duality, paradox like anytime I've been like in the middle of saying something and then literally thought and said out loud well but actually this is the other side and like they both you know um yeah and I don't think that's just us as clinicians I think that is like helping professionals therapists like all across uh, the gambit and like you're saying research is kind of a uh 
a very tangible way to see how this polarity exists and all the different colors of that. Yeah, and I and I I want each of us to kind of embrace that there's multiple ways to think about things. Mm. And there may it, there may be a type or practice or pop or group of people trying not to say population that doesn't mean anything yeah. anymore group of people that you want to work you want to support that just feels more natural to you and that's okay gravitate mm. towards your strengths but keep in your mind that someone else's strengths may be in something that looks very opposite to that and that doesn't make their creativity wrong if you're a math person and if mm -hmm. you are a creative it doesn't make math people limited it's just a way to value what we're doing in different ways yeah yeah for sure that's making me think of um the current uh conversation is not the word but the the awareness around the neurodivergent community yeah. and a lot of neurodivergent people you know being public about their experience and um advocating and trying to be a voice for you know that they didn't have when they were younger and that type of thing and from people in my own life one of the things they say is you know growing up I was always told that I think wrong or the way I process things is wrong um so this is making me think of that. It's like, it doesn't have to be as extreme as like neurotypical versus neurodivergent, yeah. but just people think differently. And uh, it's important to understand each as much as we can, because together we can gain and apply so much more information. Yeah. And, and just not putting things, I think, on those poles, yeah. on, on either or this or that continuum. Um, and I got to thinking about this the other day. It's like, well, what do I not like about poles? because it seems like opposites is part of it. Mm -hmm. But we use that in research with semantic differentials. Those are the scales that have zero in the middle, minus one, minus two, three on one side and plus two, plus two, three on the others. And usually what's on those, those words, which is the irony of scaling is that you have to describe it with words <laughs> is you put happy on one side, sad on the other, or highly dislike or highly like, and you, you pull those as poles which in some, mm. some research, that's good. Like that's helpful information to say, I have zero anxiety, I have a very high level of anxiety, or I have a very low level of anxiety, and I can pull either way. But what's the opposite of, of happy? Is it sad? Is it discontent? Mm. Is it unhappy? And so we, we have to come up with a word that could be argued by a number of people really isn't the opposite of the other word. Yeah. And so from a math standpoint, what do those numbers, what do those scores mean if the person responding doesn't agree with how you've labeled those polls? Totally. So you get inaccurate or non-representative data from that person who's trying their best to, to mark the bubble or fill in the dot or click the box, but to them, they feel both happy and sad because those don't feel like two things that can't exist at the same time. Mm. Yeah. I have a very clinical application I want to get your thought on. So sure. I'm working with one of my people, um, young man, autism, 
and we're working. He one day he was like, I want to write a song. Cool. What are we going to write about? He says, my feelings. It's like, this is something we've been like very slowly working towards. Yes, we're going to write about your feelings. Um, And he equates or at least verbalizes every emotion with happy or good. So we'll do stressed or frustrated or angry or sad. And I'll say, you know, how does that feel in your body? Or what is that similar to? And everything is happy and good. Um, So yes, like working with him to say they can exist together, Mm -hmm. but how do we say they are different? Mm -hmm. Even though they can coexist, these are different things. They are opposite feelings in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? Sure. Well, if I, I don't know him, so I don't know how, but I think just in general. Yeah. I've, I've worked with folks who, who struggle with what does my body feel like yeah. during emotions? Right. And that's the body is one measure. Mm. What I think about is a different measure. So he's reporting to you how he thinks about it is mostly good and you're trying to ask him to measure it as if it's physical sensations for him Mm. and he's not there he's not describing his feelings in those ways yet Mm. and i had a young man we worked with not on the spectrum per se but had some intellectual disability and could label the emotions he could tell me what situation might happen if you feel that emotion and you would ask him what does it feel like in your body and he couldn't answer us. He just gets stuck. I was like, huh, mm. that's a totally different experience of emotion to understand mm. that your your physiology, your neurology, your body is also communicating that. Mm-hmm. So I often think of that when we have research studies that have like five or six dependent variables. We yes. got heart rate, we got blood pressure, we've got a self-report of anxiety, a self-report of relaxation. And we'll often, especially in relaxation literature, find that the biology and the self-report don't correlate. Yeah. And I was like, who's right? Which part of that data is is meaningful? Yeah. They could both be accurate, but which one is meaningful? Is the patient saying, I feel calmer. I experience myself as calmer. I'm ready to go into the surgery lab, but in fact, my blood pressure is still (laughs) high and didn't go down and my heart rate is high and didn't go down. Is that no, in fact, you're not calm. Mm. So those are two different ways of looking at the same phenomenon. Yeah. And you're asking your client to measure it in one phenomenon and he's not measuring it in that way. He's measuring it in the way he describes it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I you're making me think of Vanderkolk, the body keeps the score, that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Where like, you know, we intellectualize or maybe in a way disassociate from the body. And so, you know, in our head we're saying, Yeah, I feel this way. But the body is saying Hmm, you actually may feel a different way. <laughs> yes. I don't know that my body is capable of lying, but yeah. I'm pretty sure my brain and my mouth are capable of lying. Well <laughs> So chances are there's some reality to those high blood pressure, high heart rate. I'm about to go into surgery. I think I feel okay, but 
probably there's there's some truth on both sides. And the anesthesiologist is probably a little more concerned with my biology variables than my mental state, which probably will show up more on patient satisfaction surveys. So it's like they're going to have to make their decision based on the biology. Yeah. So you are also teaching a course this semester that has to do with like this research and um, looking at stuff and you're trying to add this, this lens to it. So what has that brought up for your classes so far? Or have you had like any really intricate discussions on this? Yes, this is my undergraduate research methods in music therapy, which I enjoy teaching knowing that in the end, the percentage of the students who are going to turn into career researchers is fairly small, but I want mm -hmm. them, first of all, to learn to question everything yeah. <laughs> and to look at, know enough about quantity and quantitativeness in research that they can make a deduction from what they read that's informed. And over time, I think the biggest shift in the, in the curriculum has been um, there's always been kind of a quantitative unit, a descriptive qualitative unit. And now I'm like, I've got to find spot for mixed methods <laughs> because yeah. that is really where the research is headed is being able to look at both sides, being able to look at a sound, well-tested variable report from the person experiencing music therapy and then see to what degree they those two ways of measuring, those two ways of valuing align or disalign. Mm -hmm. So I listened to lots of podcasts and there was one they were talking about, oh, it was one on cognition. I'm going to get the data wrong and I don't have the author, but it was like retirement reduces your cognitive capacity. Okay. <laughs> I would like to know a little more about that study before right. I decide to never retire because I'm going <laughs> to lose cognitive capacity, but we just got the tagline and that wasn't really the point of the podcast. So I said, Hmm, this is a good question for the students. I said, here's, mm -hmm. here's the one, the tweetable social media length outcome of a researcher study, you know, researchers have researchers find that people's cognitive capacity deteriorates after retirement. I said, what else do you want to know before mm -hmm. you tell me to never retire? Like, how old were the participants? Good. What else? How old were they when they retired? Yes. How long was it from the first time they tested to the last time they tested? Yes. What else? Well, what did they do as a career? Yes. What have they done since retirement? Now you're thinking, now you're thinking of what do I really want to know before I walk away? Not that that statement wasn't truthful. Their data could have easily represented a cognitive decline. Mm -hmm. I want to know, did you vet it with age? Did you vet it? What was your scale? What was the tool? Where, and they're like, well, where were the participants even tested? Like if they retired at 70 and now they're 85, like did they had to come to a lab and were they nervous when they came to the lab? I'm like, Yay, yes. you're learning, right? Take what you get there. It's not that the researchers were trying to skew the outcome, but there's a lot of things that would go into that conclusion that before you decide never to retire, 
Yeah, you want to know that. And so that's really my aim for them to look at research and look at numbers and not be too afraid in the results section when you see columns and columns and columns of numbers. Try to see what it means. Like what is the what what does that number 23 mean? You have to look back and see, well, what was the tool? Right? It's like, well, okay, that was the Beck depression inventory. Is a 23 a score that means you have a high level of depression or is it a score that means you have a low level of depression? And when they do their, their music therapy treatment and you test again, what does a change in that score mean? Did that the person get better or not? Did they get a little bit better or did they get a whole lot better? And it's then that's numbers. And if you aren't somebody who likes to read math, you kind of get panicky in that section is like, just, you know, drink your coffee, calm down, just read it, just look <laughs> at it, see if you can figure out, is there a clinical benefit? Mm. Because when you get to the statistics, numbers are just numbers to statistics programs. It's not a person, it's not a score, it's not clinically relevant or irrelevant, it's just a number. The yeah. researchers have to decide, is those change in scores meaningful mm -hmm. did did the people in this study benefit a little not so much not at all that and you, that's a value right that's a that's a clinical judgment yeah. that's more intuition which is yeah. why i say there's really no fine line between quantitative and qualitative we're all looking at it as a story one just has a little more math in it one has a little less but there's no way to take out valuing and giving numbers context. So maybe yeah. a two point drop in something is fantastic. That's like, wow, nobody ever has a two point change. This is an amazing technique of music therapy. Or maybe two points is like, it's really nothing. Like if it's blood pressure, 120, 122, ugh. Maybe not that clinically impactful. It doesn't make the number wrong. It just means mm. it doesn't really give us, it doesn't show us very much. Yeah. Yeah. And that has implications for um, taking our session notes and taking progress yes. notes. Yeah. Like this is very applicable, not just to research, um, yes. but to just what what we're doing day to day. Well, I had, a, I had an epiphany while running this morning. Um, yeah. I got, I'm, I'm a 5K runner. I am chasing really hard to get my 5K under 36 minutes. This morning I did it by one second. Good for you. So yes. Good good run. So qualify that. Ready that was, for all those Halloween turkey trots. <laughs> yes. Homecoming awesome. is coming up around here. Yeah. We have a military connection with our university. So our fallen soldiers run is coming up. So almost got my time. So if you ask me, was that a good run? I'll say, yeah, that was a good run. And then you asked me, well, what were the metrics? Well, mm. my first mile was 1142, which was good. It was good pacing. My heart rate was good. So that was, that was probably a pretty good mile. Mile two was fast. I sped up. So it was 1120, but my heart rate got too high. I have an alarm. So my heart rate alarm's mm. going off. So I'm like, okay, mile three. I'm trying to balance, not overexerting, so that my heart rate yells at me all day and I have a headache because that's what happens. Mm. And still aiming for this 
sub 36. So mile three was like, I don't know, it depends on what meet, what metric you looked at. It was 11, 11.52. And then I had the 10th of a mile where I'm like, I'm just running because I'm like this close, this close to making my 36. I made it by one second. But it's like, what part of your clinical judgment? So thinking of mile one is one session, mile two is another session, mile three is another session. When you're taking documentation, what what made that a good session? Mm. Was it the time or was it me controlling my heart rate? So that, I mean, that's all over the place in terms of things. So thinking of, we, I um, supervise several students working in special education classrooms and you're out with the student, it's a fairly large elementary classroom, very diagnoses. And you have, we have to balance things that are more social and engaging and creative and things they they find enjoyable and academic learning song based repetition come up spell this word sing a song about it type things because those take more attention yeah and some days you walk into the classroom and you're just like oh boy <laughs> We, are, we don't have the attention capacity that we had last week for whatever yeah. reason. And you can decide, well, that was a bad session. Or you can decide that it was actually a good session if I measure it based on helping the children self-regulate and stay on task and stay engaged for 45 minutes when I walked in and assessed we're not in that space. Or it was, quote, a bad session because we didn't have every child come up to the board and spell a word or do a math thing. But mm. it's like, but I made that clinical judgment. So on my data sheet, sure, there are children who quote, didn't meet their goal that day because it says two things of academics or whatever, or they didn't get them right because they were distracted that day. Mm -hmm. And so you can qualify that, well, that was a bad session. Well, are you looking at time or heart rate? Yeah. <laughs> You took the words out of my mouth from working in classrooms for years yeah. and years. And some days you walk in and I'm like, today is a self-regulation day. If I can leave this classroom and they're a bit calmer and the teacher can then do the academics, then that is a success for today. Yeah. Yeah. Or you're, if you only isolate that one session, whatever report you have, isn't going to give you that big picture. Yeah. And so in, in field work and students, it's if we have a finite amount of time, we are working in a semester at the end of the semester, you do your clinical summary. And then the next semester, you get different clients just to have varied experience. And me as a clinician, I'm like, eight treatment sessions is nothing. That is yeah. no time at all to mm -hmm. have a human being have a substantial measurable change in who they are. I said, you just need these little bitty micro goals that you can keep your mind on so that you're not just throwing music things at them, but you have purpose and you have intention, but don't be devastated when at the end of the semester, they don't quote unquote meet their goal. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's just eight sessions. Is it's just Nothing. not enough time no. for most folks to have a measurable mm -hmm. change, especially some of the folks we see. Um, it, it's just not, it's just not enough time. Hmm. That's an important lesson that, um, 
what am I trying to say? So when I was an undergrad, we had like an offsite practicum that we did for a semester. And then we had an onsite clinic that they transitioned while I was there to be a full year with the same person. Mm -hmm. And so that was my time to observe like, oh, right. Doing a full year of this. I do see more than like the eight times I saw, you know, whoever I was seeing offsite. Um, And then now having worked with certain people I've been working with for years and years and years, I'm like, oh my gosh, like you can't, you can barely build rapport (laughs) in eight weeks sometimes. And like, that's okay. Uh, when you have the time to do that. So yeah, for sure. And I've worked in several different settings that were single session. So inpatient medical, inpatient psych, where the, the sh- length of stay got really short and maybe I only had Monday ther- music therapy on Monday and Tuesdays and not Wednesdays and then Thursdays and Fridays. And so my Monday people should could be gone by Thursday. And so you yeah. did have a very short period of time and you learned to go in with a target. Like I want to have them experience this thing in session. I want to be able to document on that outcome, but it wasn't often, it wasn't as easy to number it in some way. It's like, I would like every person to have a chance for self-expression related to feelings. Does it matter if they self-expressed two feelings or four feelings Mm -hmm. or just feelings, right? Yeah. Like it doesn't math real easily and, and that's okay. I mean, if they, gave me a purposeful, meaningful statement about their experience related to the music, things I brought for them. Fantastic. But education and developmental disability, it was a numbers world. Like you had accuracy and percentage and prompt levels and like all of these pieces of data floating around in your head while you've got 10 students that you're trying not to throw things or fall asleep. And you're like, I think my head's going to explode. But, but that was the demands of the setting, right? So it, it varied across my career still of how numbery do we need to be? And numbers make sense to people. Like mm-hmm. if you have a pie chart or a bar graph in a person's summary for the year, it, people look at that and go, oh, look, music therapy helped. Yeah. And you're like, we need that. We need that. Yes, it did. Or if it didn't, we really need to contemplate, is this an appropriate service? Yeah. And if it's not, yeah. that's okay too. 100%. I think that's like a whole other thing to, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which we can get into if you want, but yeah, it, you know, is music therapy, I don't even want to say necessary. Is music therapy actually benefit beneficial? The person? Beneficial yeah, yeah, yeah. is a good word. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Are there other polarities that you wanted to touch on? Because, you know, there's a lot. Um, But is there like one that's really screaming at you today? Not particularly the polarities, but I think the the intersection of describing and giving numbers. I actually have two articles I would recommend to listeners to go and pull. They're very different and I can send them to you. One is by John Carpenti. It was in Music Therapy Perspectives, I think 2018, and it's Goal Attainment Scaling. Um, And then it's a way to create a, create basically kind of a rubric, looking at the client's participation in some way. His article is centered around music, music centered. So being able to describe in a leveled system, how the person 
is in music, what musical output they put in improvisation, what would be, what would represent health or improvement. So there's two scales mm -hmm. that help them be better. And then there's two points on that scale where they are um, below wherever their baseline was. And the beauty of that scale is that you can cover any expression that those could be things about attention. Those could be things about emotional expression, though, whatever that scale you create is, is your description. Like it's your description as a clinician, where's their baseline, which I think is zero. And mm -hmm. then there's a minus two categories and minus and two categories for benefit. And there's a, there's a math on it. So if you want to do the math and show, you know, did you have a meaningful change at two points across treatment? Um, you can have that. So it's the beauty, I think it's that intersection again of can you really describe what the person is doing in music and what would be better and what it would look like if they're losing skills over time? Because hmm. I think I just really, I don't think you can ever get away from that marriage of numbers and description. Mm -hmm. And one of the mixed method studies that I, I find really helpful for people to ponder this, and I'm going to get all the authors. Um, it is in JMT in 2016. It's called Vocal Music Therapy for Chronic Pain Management in Inner City African Americans, a Mixed Methods Feasibility Study by authors Yoka Brat, Marisol Norris, Minjun Shim, Edward Gracely and Patricia Garrity. And there's a beautiful table that intersects the qualitative and the quantitative data and shows where one revealed the person's served experience differently. Hmm. And because they interviewed the people, they were able to understand when they experienced skepticism about those standardized tools and what it would mean if they marked certain things. And so some of the reports on the, the benefit of the study, it was vocal music, um, was different than the quantitative variables that they didn't align on paper, but it was because of how they looked at those tools. So even though as researchers, we very much value reliable, valid, tested, standardized measures, because we believe that there's less error built into the tool itself, you're, it's still up to a person to read it and say, hmm, am I a one today or a six? And if I mark a six, what does that mean about me? Yeah. Does that mean I'm well or unwell based on my score? Hmm. And then a report in an interview may reveal those benefits, right? It's like, yes, I feel relaxed and less stressed, but my blood pressure is still high, right? It's like, yeah, both of those things can coexist. They just inform differently. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I am thinking the the first study you mentioned with um, Carpente. Uh-huh the baseline zero I think it's being zero. able to move mm -hmm. even though zero is always zero that being able to move and like needing that description of where zero is in one day like that's super uh applicable I think just to like our daily notes yeah um yeah yeah and the go ahead yeah I, I have the article up zero is the expected outcome okay 
zero is expected outcome, plus one is greater than expected, plus two is most favorable, and then zero expected minus one is less than expected, and minus two is least favorable. And I'd have to refresh myself on the article on whether the intention is like per session scales or like over time, like a start mm. end of 16 weeks type of scale. But yeah, even using zero as an expected outcome makes us feel weird because zero has a connotation. Neutral. Yeah. 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 So interesting. I'll have to dive into those. But like, um, like you said, if you send them and I'll sure. find them either way, and we'll put them in the show notes so that people people can check those out for themselves too. Yeah, it's what do the numbers mean? And, and numbers have yeah. meaning to us. We've looked at this a couple of times with how do you grade practicum? How do you grade yeah. internship? Um, you know, and we've just gone through the Higher Learning Commission recertification with our university. So we've been doing all this stuff on assessment. And <laughs> the School of Music often gets dinged for our assessment practices because everybody is superlative. Like everybody is mm -hmm. a four out of four. Everybody's doing everything awesome. And we're like, yeah, but we like teach to that, right? We teach to excellence. It's like, but from a from an assessment standpoint, that's like, you can't do that. So we have to use a does not meet, meets minimally. Mm. I can't remember the next one. Meets expectations and then exceeds expectations. Yeah. And I was like, okay. So <laughs> across whatever I'm evaluating, I kind of need people to be minimally meets yeah. to reflect across the group. Like everybody can't be excellent. Mm. I said, and this is not data we give to the students as informative of their process. I said, but if we did, and I see this with internships um, scale sometimes that really perfectly good enough is three, but there is a four. Mm. And at midterm, most people get twos. And when I first see that, I'm like, oh dear, what are they doing wrong? We, yeah. Oh, yeah. What if I, you know, how can I support them? Are we, do I need to like meet with them? We're like, no, no, everybody gets a two. Two means it's good. <laughs> oh, good. Fine. Yeah. Great. Well, then congratulations on your success <laughs> and midterm, right? Because that number doesn't mean the same to me as it meant to the person who was giving that score. Yeah. And so threes. Threes are a perfectly MTBCable person, and I don't know who four is. I guess they're just a superhero. Yeah, I um, some of the schools I go to, I'm like music education adjacent, and so I have to do like report cards, and they use a similar scale. You know, outstanding, satisfactory, unsatisfactory, needs improvement. Yeah. You know, anyway, some some variation of that, and again, it's set on expectations and like, yes, the school has their list of expectations. I have, you know, rules and expectations in my classroom, but like I might have higher expectations of certain students or mm -hmm. my expectations might be too high. And I think like in general, in, in my class, you know, the students aren't meeting them, but the rest of the staff is saying, Hey, they did really well in your class. You know, this is the first time they've attended to anything mm -hmm. all day. So yeah, there's so much bias in that too. It's like we're trying to make this scalable in a way that's universal, uh, but you got humans on both ends of that, either putting in the data or tracking the data. And so it's not universal and scalable. No, and at some point we have to describe to one another, 
what yeah. does the three mean to you? What does the three mean to me? And if we are looking at the same phenomenon in session, if we've described it well enough, we should be able to come to the same conclusion that what we saw is a three or it's not a three. Yeah. But it's difficult because we're trying to describe elements of music, right? Mm. Were they attending if they weren't making eye contact? Well, could be, yeah. but it's difficult to observe and quantify. What I can quantify is what I can see. What I can see is they're looking at their shoes. But a week later, I asked them something from session last week when I thought they quote unquote were not attending and they repeated verbatim what we did. So in fact, they yes. were attending. And my my need to quantify that by percentage of eye contact is just not a good measure. Mm -hmm. So I got to come up with some other way to measure it. And so we're, I think we're constantly refining, hopefully, how we measure. Yeah. And then how is that meaningful to capture the client's experience, especially when it comes to is the service beneficial or not for that person? Yeah. And you won't know unless they have that moment where they speak up and show you that they got something out of, you know, three weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've, I'm thinking of a couple of students in mind where like other staff will come to my room and the other staff will be like, oh, we're just going to take so-and-so out of session because clearly they're not participating. Or whatever. I'm like, no, no, no. So-and-so is a sponge. <laughs> they must sit there and absorb at their own pace, but I know they're absorbing everything. Yes. <laughs> yes. And it's delayed. We often want, yeah. we want their response immediately after service delivery. And often yeah. we get it three weeks, three months, three years yeah. later. And depending on when your contact with that person ended, you may not see that. And I think totally. it's an Orson Welles quote we used one year when we were talking about closure. I said, whether or not a story has a happy ending kind of depends on where you stop the story. Ah. And I was like, that really resonated for students in field work who have such a limited time with their clients. It said, you may not see the benefit of your service, but the person who sees that same person next, next semester could. I said, or yeah. it could be two years from now. And because I've supervised here in this community for more than a decade, I'm like, I see it 10 years later. Mm -hmm. Or on the other end, I see, I remember how our older adults were 10 years ago and how they're different now, but I mm -hmm. have their history. So I'm like, I know what music they enjoy. I know their stories of their life. And when they're not able to retrieve them quickly, I know those familiar, those familiar experiences that can bring them back. I said, you're seeing them at this stage in their dementia but it's not how they've always been. They've been mm. different. And it's just a matter of being able to kind of see those over time. And I think time is one of those factors that it's, we measure it in days and hours, but on some higher level, that doesn't matter. Yeah. It happens when it happens. Yeah. Well said. Is there anything else you want to dive into before we do the rapid fire? Oh, no, I have all kinds of things in here about how do you value what you measure? The last one is journal articles, just because I have to put a plug in here. For those of yeah. you who aren't on the interior part of journals, there's two factors that we use to see if an article was 
for lack of a better term, successful or not. Um, one is impact factor and journals have this number that says how impactful they are. And it has to do with how frequently an article was cited in the year following its publication. Hmm. So that has a lot to do with a lot of different things like the appeal, the, the scope, the type of the article, traffic in that particular area of scholarship, and then you get an impact factor. And it's important because people use impact factors for four things. Another is a score called altmetrics, and it has to do with social media and how much traction a particular article gets on social media. So those are two different ways of looking at quote unquote success of any published mm -hmm. article, but they come from two very different sources. Yeah. And so it just is a matter of what do you value? Like which of those metrics have meaning to you as a scholar and how much um, stake you put in the meaningfulness of those numbers? Yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad you had a social media one in there because that's transferable to just daily life. <laughs> it is. It is. But it also means that somebody somewhere has to put put a research article out into social media yeah. and get action with it, get interaction with it. Yeah. And that's not always how we've approached sharing scholarship in the past. Totally. What an interesting world we live in. It's weird. <laughs> <laughs> It's weird. It's yeah. just a yeah. weird time to be alive, I think. <laughs> but also exciting because conversations like this are happening. And they like are. we said at the beginning of this, you've seen a lot of changes yeah. over time. And I'd like to think most of them have been positive changes in a um, beneficial direction that is helping more humans than it is hurting. I hope so. I hope that we are able better to step back and see value and how you're measuring value that those are can be different systems mm. and you don't measure an apple by an orange's standards yeah but in the end just make a fruit smoothie and they're both delicious yeah <laughs> yes i love that This podcast is sponsored by the Music Therapy Podcast Collective, also known as MTPC, where you can find a variety of CMTE opportunities in the form of pod courses. All of MTPC's pod courses are built on a listen, learn, apply model, where you start by listening to some assigned podcast episodes, then move into learning with the assistance of a workbook filled with resources for you to start your self-study towards whatever topics are most interesting, inspiring, and applicable to your practice. And then we finish with the apply section, which includes an office hour and a worksheet to determine how you are going to apply your learning to your personal life or professional practice. You can find all the Music Therapy Chronicles pod courses on our website, musictherapychronicles.com, and you can find the entire catalog of pod courses at MTPC's website, mtpodcastcollective.com. 
Make sure you also get on the MTPC newsletter for 10% off your first pod course purchase. ready for the rapid fire i am all right the first one is coffee or tea coffee and it has to be pete's coffee and a blend not a flavor so don't put hazelnut or vanilla but i will take a african blend south american blend like so i get different blends from different regions of the country so i am a coffee snob I love my peats. Gotta know what you like. Yes. I will drink tea, but it's usually when I have a sore throat. So I associate mm-hmm. tea with sickness. So it's not usually my go to. Gotcha. <laughs> not a relaxing experience for you. No. <laughs> Early bird or night owl? I'm a neither, but I'm definitely not an early bird. I would prefer like the 11 o'clock bedtime, seven o'clock wake up time, but that's not Mm -hmm. adult work life hours. So I can make myself get up, but it's effortful and I don't stay awake very long these days. So by Mm -hmm. 10 or 11, it's, it's time to call it a day. I'm noticing that those two are very polar questions. They are. My mother is a early bird. This woman wakes up naturally, no alarm clock between 4 a.m. and 5 a.m. Wonderful for her. (laughs) Good for you. And if you're home at Christmas, grandma is up puttering around at 5 a.m. And the rest of us are like, what is happening? She's not like a wake up and read a book type person. I, I have no clue what this woman does in the dark at four o'clock in the morning, but she just, she's just awake. And I'm like, well, I am not, I don't have that gene. Didn't inherit that. That's okay. Nope. What is something you'd tell your younger self? Hmm. Thought about this one. You will end up where you're meant to be. Yeah. Your music therapy elevator speech. I was going to look up a presentation where I wrote a definition once and I didn't have time. First of all, I want to know where is this elevator? What is the building? And how many floors do I have? Okay. It's the elevator in your music therapy building. Okay. You're going from the first floor to wherever your office is. And what was the third part of that? (laughs) Yeah. Where am I and how many, how long do I have? Like how much time is in this elevator? Because that's how much time you have. Yeah. Because I think I change it. Well, in my building, there is no elevator. You have to walk up the stairs. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Farewell speech. Yes. Yes. I, I do think we shape what we say based on why someone has asked and mm-hmm. what level of creative language I'm using versus what level of scientific language I'm using. So if I'm in a mm-hmm. hospital setting and I've got a guitar on and I can see that you have on a medical ID badge and you give me the, hey, you're coming to play the guitar for the patients? <laughs> Love that one. Yes, I am. I'm a board certified music therapist. I see you work on 
this floor with this type of people. I could benefit, you know, I'm actually going to that floor to see this person for this reason. Would you like to come with me and see how I use music to insert goal here for this person? Right. So I think, yes. So it's tailoring it, right? If I'm talking to high school musicians who I'm thinking, well, some of you could be music therapists, you resonate a little bit more with them on the musical aspects. Like I sing every day. I play the guitar every day. I play percussion instruments. Last week I sang Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Last week in September, I sang Jingle Bells three times because people <laughs> asked for it, right? We also, did a dance to 70s music it's like if you're resonating with the music aspect i want them to understand the breadth of what that musicing looks like and then we'll start to say and it was in these clinical settings like we'll start to make that bridge of to the clinical side of it so i do think i switch up what i say and how i say which is kind of like i want to know where i am to know which speech to pick and i want to know how long i have because yeah. chances are I want to get there. I want to get the answer to why do you ask? Mm -hmm. Because sometimes that'll help me know what the second part of that conversation is. Because if it's in the hospital, it's in an elevator, it could be a loved one and they have someone in the hospital who they think, hey, wouldn't music be helpful to them at this point? And they want to know if I can come see yeah. that person. So getting that next, that next level information I think is really important because I can give definitions out of textbooks, but it doesn't usually connect in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. That's usually, um, the, what am I trying to say? The, when people get that questions that connect is what they're going mm -hmm. for. Yeah. Yeah. And when I ask elevator speech, they're like, well, how, you know, they're like, okay, I need to tailor it to the connect. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's really exciting when you say, oh, music therapist. They go, oh, I've had music therapy. You cringe a little bit and say, yeah, tell me about it. It's like, oh, well, my daughter was a cancer patient in this hospital and the music therapist came to see them. And I was like, oh, really? It's like, well, tell me about that. Did your daughter like that? How, how did you see the service? And it's like the conversation turns on a dime when you're like, that really was an MTBC doing, yeah, yeah. doing the work and how exciting that you actually know what I do. Instead of doing that, okay, one more time. Yeah. <laughs> this is what I do. One more time. One more time. <laughs> or sometimes people say, what do you do? And I'll say, I'm a college professor. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> Short and sweet. Yeah. What do you teach? Music. Do you, so you like singing? Full stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sort of. <laughs> sort of. Okay, I'm a music therapist. What's that? Okay. Yep. Here we go. <laughs> Strap in. We're going for it. Love it. What is your favorite self-care practice? Running. I like yeah. to run. I've run last year. I ran over 300 miles, three miles at wow. a time. Good for you. Yeah. That's awesome. I am not a land sport person. But if I was, I'd probably go with running. Well, connecting to self-care, I did not start running until I was 41. Okay. So. I have time. Find, find, I mean, and I had not found what I could stick with from an exercise standpoint to that point. And I just said, all right, let's try this. I'm like, I think I'll be bad at it. But it was like, I'm not fast. But I enjoy putting on sneaks and going outside and running my laps. So. Just keep trying. If you haven't found your self-care 
jam yet. That's all right. You'll find it eventually. I think more people need to hear that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Something that's currently adding value to your life. Podcasts, including yours. Yes. Thank I, you. I listen to a bunch of them. Hidden Brain by Sean Carvey Dantham. I listen to Teaching in Higher Ed with Bonnie Stahoviak. I listen to the War Chant podcast and follow Florida State football. <laughs> Brene Brown's Dare to Lead and uh, the other one I'm escaping me. Her other one. So I find lots of content. I, I like I like learning. That's a self-care. I like learning new information that keeps yeah. my brain connecting dots. So I like that. Can relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, your favorite intervention or song to use in a session, but if you'd rather tailor that to your um, academia teaching. Sure. Take it that way. No, I thought about that. And it's not a song, but it's a moment. Hmm. It, and it's and it usually happens songs we use a lot of songs i see older adults we see kids in school so they're song heavy in in that work and it's that moment where you're just connected with them and you know it you don't have to put a number on it you just know it right and usually i'm have the advantage point of being the supervisor and not being in the moment but witnessing the moment and for one little kiddo in our, our elementary school, it was the, the fish song. It was one, two, three, four, five. Once I caught a fish alive, it was her jam. This was kind of an understemmed kid who was mostly sleepy and her, her head was off and down. And if we scrolled through the PowerPoints, if she saw the fish, it was like fish song. And we're like, okay, it's totally not on our plan today, but we are gonna take five minutes and sing fish song. And she will sing it the whole time. And you have to sing the whole thing. You cannot cut part of it out. Of course not. And she's just, and it's just like, my students are just like, okay, I've sung this 20 times this semester. And I'm like, sing it 21, right? And, yeah. and they're just so connected. It's like, oh, and then I'm back there like trying not to cry because I'm like, this is so sweet. They're just so connected. And it happened this week with our older adults, with our late stage group. And I don't even remember what the song was, but it was a waltz. Hmm. And the students just is just mimicking the body motion of this older adult. And I know they're late enough stage. They didn't smile, but I swear I saw a smile. I really do. I really thought they kind of their face lifted and I got an eyebrow. I got an eyebrow flash of like, yeah, this is fun. I'm enjoying myself. Um, so it's really not so it's songs, but it's not a song. It's when yeah. that song connects. And you can just kind of hold that moment mm. together that I'm like, that's my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. All right. The last question is where can people find you and connect with you? Probably my email address is the most trafficked place. I'm, I'm on social media on Facebook only, but my university email would be fine. It's J D as in Dawn dash my name Jones and the number two if you don't put the number two in there some other person with the last name of Jones ends up with my email because there's more than one JD dash Jones so add the two at wiu.edu cool 
We'll have that linked as well as all the wonderful resources you yes. mentioned. For sure. Thank you for making the time to come on and have this conversation and being open to sharing your thoughts, not just with me, but with the listeners as a whole. Because I, I know that this will be both informative and thought provoking for people to be able to look at things with um, a critical lens, both like what we're doing. And then of course the research where we're creating or digesting. Sure. So hopefully if I heard research early, they won't like click out thinking it's, Oh, I can't listen to a research talk, but yes, you can, you can do it. Yes. And we should, we need to, it's, it's part of, um, part of being a professional. Yeah. Well, in our field, you know, Anyway, I digress. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, you have to know that you in lots of healthcare fields, you you should be able to digest research. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. I hope you learned a lot and have your critical thinking lens on now for looking at research, for having conversations about our profession, for seeing duality and polarity, but also seeing the intersection of everything and that not everything has to be polarized. Like a lot of differing ideas and concepts can overlap in so many ways. Um, one of the thoughts I had when she was talking about the limited view that we sometimes get from research, right, when she was saying about uh, cognition declining over or after retirement, I was thinking about um, a social media post I had seen, and I'm going to try to get it as close as possible, but it was a scientist who is a musician, and so, a musician, let me try again, a scientist who is a comedian, there we go, and so he takes science and makes it comical, and the joke he was saying was, um, I might get the stats wrong, but 60% of marriages end in divorce, and you know, people look at that, and they think, wow, 60%, that's a lot of marriages, and so he says, but that means 40% of marriages end in death. <laughs> and, you know, which is really the better option here, divorce or death? Uh, and it was just a funny way to say, like, oh, research and stats and, um, you know, both qualitative and quantitative data can be skewed <laughs> or can be portrayed in a way that is uh, trying to elicit a certain reaction from the viewer, the reader, whatever have you. So anyway, I hope you got a little giggle out of that. Uh, if I can find that post, I will link it in the show notes. Of course, there's going to be lots of other amazing resources that were mentioned in today's show. Um, and if you also are listening to episodes and, you know, want to share your thoughts again, either just with me or you want to come on and like deepen the conversation, please reach out. You can reach me at hello at musictherapychronicles.com. Please consider sending this episode to someone who you think might enjoy it. Um, subscribe to the show so you don't miss any episodes. Follow us on social media to keep up with stuff. And the best way to see what's going on and to be the first to know about things is to get on our newsletter. Because uh, that is your direct line to me, to the Chronicles. Social media can get a little hairy. And anyway, we don't have to get into that. But yeah, get on our newsletter at musictherapychronicles.com if you haven't done that already. Thank you again so much for supporting the show, for listening to today's episode, and I'll see you in the next one.
thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation and got a lot out of it. If you're looking for more Music Therapy Chronicles, you can check out our website, musictherapychronicles.com, for more episodes, blog posts, social media links, um, contact information, our self-care community, and our CMTE opportunities in the form of pod courses. Hop on our monthly newsletter if you haven't already, and follow us on social media for just staying up to date on what's going on behind the scenes. We are Music Therapy Chronicles on all of the platforms. Please take a moment to leave us a rating and review. They really help the podcast be more visible so more people like you who are looking for this type of content can find it. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to this week's episode, and I'll see you in the next one.